September the 12th at South Congaree Arena. It's our one church event. Our Lexington campus, our West Columbia campus will come together as one church to worship, to hear incredible testimonies, to let God speak to us in a powerful way. You don't want to miss it. Again, September the 12th, South Congaree Arena. Look forward to seeing you there. Good morning. Good morning. How are y'all doing? Very good, I guess. Heard the good morning. Very cool. Well, hey, before uh, we open up, I just want to piggyback off that video and make sure y'all know that, that we really want to encourage and really hope that you can all make it out next week to our One Church Worship Day. Um, so there's not going to be life groups here. We're all going to that South Congaree Arena to worship with the West Campus, Lexington Campus, all together. Kids are going to be here. So please, please, please come together and worship with us there. So if you have your Bible this morning, uh, you can go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter 4. That's where we're going to be looking. I'm going to really kind of tell the story of what happens all throughout this chapter. Uh, but I'm going to read some verses, um, some little passages in there as we work our way through there. So as you're turning there, uh, I want you to think back a little bit. Uh, who remembers Mike Tyson? Mike Tyson, famous boxer. I mean, pretty much everyone in here should have at least heard of Mike Tyson, right? Like super famous boxer, super talented. I mean, he was, he was known for his knockout power. He was, he was pretty awesome, super successful. Just everybody knows Mike Tyson, face tattoo guy, you know, weirdo, all right? But the reason I bring up Mike Tyson is because, uh, you see, he was so successful, yet so proud it actually led to a defeat, but just to illustrate his success, this dude one time was driving his Ferrari, it ran out of gas, and instead of going to the gas station and filling it up, he just left it on the side of the road never to return and pick it up. And he bought a Tiger one time. Okay, so we've established he's a little crazy, super successful, the kind of guy that just did whatever he wanted. But you see, in 1990, during the heat of Mike Tyson's career, he was going up against a no-named fighter named Buster Douglas, who nobody cared about. Nobody thought it was going to be a chance. The odds were, were not, you know, oh, is Buster Douglas going to win? It was more so just betting on how fast it was going to take Mike Tyson to knock him out. You see, he knocked out his previous opponent. He, he did it several times before. So nobody was rooting for Buster Douglas. Mike Tyson was so confident, so proud, so filled with this pride from his success that he didn't even train for the fight. The night before, he was, he was actually out partying. The next day, during the fight, Mike Tyson lost to Buster Douglas in the 10th round by knockout. You see, the reason that I share this story is because the story that we're going to look at this morning about King Nebuchadnezzar actually shows us another case of, of the dangers of pride and success and where that leads. You see, when God states in Proverbs that, that pride comes before the fall, he's not joking. Pride is a very dangerous thing, and it's actually something I believe that, that each and every one of us struggle with in one way or another, because I believe it's at the root of all of our sin. And so I want you all to hear this main point as we open up this message. The main point is this, pride puts us at war with our creator. Your pride will put you at war with the God of all creation. In Daniel chapter 4, we see that Nebuchadnezzar is suffering from this great pride and success. And God's about to really knock him out and humble him. 
But you see, the, the knockout that God's about to perform is not going to be one that ultimately injures, but instead is a restoring and healing knockout blow. And so before we look at Daniel chapter 4, I just want to remind y'all what's happened the past few weeks as we've looked at the first three chapters in the book of Daniel. So first of all, we, we saw and we know that, that the Jewish people, God's people, have been enslaved and brought into captivity under Babylon, right? The greatest nation in the ancient world, right? God's doing this to punish them. He's doing it because they have been in constant rebellion against him, but he's working it all out according to his purposes. But in chapter 1, we see Daniel and some of his friends who have been chosen as a select group of, of young men to sort of be raised into this position of being sort of like a council for the king. And as they're part of this group, they're, they're essentially forced to eat certain foods that God has commanded them not to eat. But instead of just doing what the king and what Babylon wants them to do, they say, no, we're going to be loyal to our God. We're going to obey God rather than you. What ends up happening as a result is, is they end up being stronger, wiser, and brighter, the Bible says, than all of the other king's men that he chose. So we saw that in chapter 1. In chapter 2, we see that, that the king has a really strange dream, and it keeps bothering him. So, so he really sends out and is trying to get all these wise men and these diviners, these priests, to come and interpret this dream for him. He's like really wanting to figure out what's going on with this weird dream, this giant statue made of metals. And none of them can interpret it. But Daniel... The Jewish boy, the man of God, is able to interpret this dream for the king. And after he interprets this dream for the king, the king actually says in verse 47 of chapter 2, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. Chapter 3, as we just saw last week, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, they're friends of Daniel's, Jewish boys. They refuse to bow down to this giant golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar sets up. He says, anybody who, who does not bow down at any trumpet or any musical instrument is going to be sentenced to death by being burnt alive. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, again, they stand up for, for serving God above serving idols. They're, they're saying, King, you're, you're not the God of all creation, and we serve him. And in doing so, the king sentences them to death. But if you recall, as they're in the fire, the king looks in and he sees a fourth man in the fire that is walking around with them. And he says, it's one that looks as the son of God. They come out because the king calls for them. He says, they're walking around there. Get them out of there. They come out. There's not a hair on their head that's singed. They don't smell like smoke. They're completely fine. Nebuchadnezzar, after this event, he exclaimed, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. They defied the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. There is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. You hear what he said? No other god can do this sort of thing. Only their god is able. We, this is where we get to chapter 4. The good stuff, interesting stuff. It just keeps getting more interesting. Chapter 4 opens up right after this event. So what we see, if you got your Bibles in verse 1 through 3, Nebuchadnezzar is proclaiming something. It says, he proclaims to those of every people, nation, and language who live in all the earth, may your prosperity increase. I am pleased to tell you about the miracles and wonders the Most High God has done for me. How great are his miracles, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. 
Now when we hear and read and see Nebuchadnezzar saying these things, we've seen his response to God really protecting his servants. We think in our minds, I mean, how could you not think, okay, God's clearly winning the battle, right? He's winning the rounds. Nebuchadnezzar hasn't won any yet. But it seems like Nebuchadnezzar's coming around. It seems like this battle's about to be over. But remember what I said about that truth, that main point. Pride puts us at war with our creator. And that's the one thing that Nebuchadnezzar had yet to deal with, his pride. He had yet to submit and surrender himself fully to the God of creation. You see, we'll look at that. I want to summarize this story, look at a couple verses. Uh, what happens essentially is after this proclamation, Nebuchadnezzar has another dream that really gets him trembling. It makes him fearful. And so what he does is in verse 6 through 7, instead of calling immediately to Daniel, who he knows is a servant of who he proclaims to be the one true God, he first again calls for his diviners, his, his priests, and all these other people. So clearly he's, he's not getting it. He's not getting who God actually is. He doesn't need to worry about these other guys. All he needs is God. But then in verse 8, whenever Nebuchadnezzar calls Daniel, this chapter in a lot of ways is actually written like Nebuchadnezzar is the one speaking and writing these words. It says, Nebuchadnezzar calls Daniel, who is called Belteshazzar. I've been struggling with that all morning, right? Weird name. But Nebuchadnezzar named Daniel this, it says, after the name of my God. You see what Nebuchadnezzar has done, right? He has professed these things about God, but he's just taking Yahweh, the one true God of all creation, and lumping him together with all his other pagan false gods. He's putting him on the same level as these made-up fairy tales, as these demonic powers, when God trumps those things completely. So what happens in this dream? Nebuchadnezzar sees a giant tree that's reaching up to the sky. It's humongous. Its branches, its leaves, it's providing shade, shelter, and food for all living beings all around, birds, animals, everything. This tree is essentially like, like the big place to live. But then a voice from heaven comes and it says that this tree is essentially going to be chopped down. Not completely uprooted, but chopped down all the way to the root. There's going to be a fence that's made of iron and bronze that's put around the tree. This, this tree now, this holy voice from heaven, proclaims as a man and, and says that this man's mind will be changed from that of a man to that of an animal for seven years. So essentially, was a tree providing shelter. Now it's a man. It's going to go insane. It's going to become crazy for seven years. And then the holy one from heaven in verse 17 says this, this is going to happen so the living will know that the most high God is ruler over the kingdoms of men. He gives them to anyone he wants and he sets even the lowliest of men over them. Now hindsight's 2020, and we do get an interpretation of the dream. But, I mean, dude, I feel like that dream is pretty simple to interpret. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar is clearly the one that's being represented by the tree, because remember, he calls it a man. And so this tree, Babylon, you know, he's providing, you know, space and, and place to live. They're flourishing. They have all this food for pretty much everywhere. Giant nation in the ancient world. Biggest it could be. No one was coming to defeat them. Like, he was the man. But God was going to humble this man. Not destroy him completely, but humble him of his pride by cutting him down. God was going to protect him. That's what the fence meant. That he was going to keep the root there, right? 
Make sure it's protected while he's going crazy. But then that also means that he's going to restore him up, give him room to grow back up. We see right after Daniel interprets this dream. In verse 27, Daniel, who was initially enslaved and has grown to become one of the the king's friends, we see his attitude of compassion and love and care for the king. He pleads with the king. May this not be true of you. In verse 27, this is what he begs the king. He says, separate yourself from your sins by doing what is right, from your injustices by showing mercy to the needy. Perhaps there will be an extension of your prosperity. Essentially, Daniel's saying, dude, repent while there's still time. Turn from your sin. Do what is right before God and seek him before it's too late. God's going to humble you. All you got to do is repent. But... What's crazy is that, again, Nebuchadnezzar's pride is so serious, is so deep, is so intense, that this whole time, no matter how much he's proclaimed with his mouth, no matter how much he's witnessed, it hasn't transformed his heart. He's still stuck in his pride, stuck in his sin, not pursuing the holiness of Daniel's God. And so what we see is that, this is where I want to be a little bit more applicable to us, right? Because I think we do this a lot. We do something similar to Nebuchadnezzar. We walk around and, and we make proclamations about God, the God that we want to serve. Or, you know, we get these truths oftentimes from the Bible. But we really hold on to the truths that make us feel comfortable, that don't really bother us at all. The truths that don't, that don't tell us to repent of our sin, that don't tell us to be holy as God is holy. The truths that tell us to love your enemies. I don't know about you guys, but I struggle loving my enemies. It's not natural to love the people that are hostile towards you. But Jesus himself, God in the flesh, commands us, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. So many truths about God, his judgment, the fact that God is so perfect, just, and right, that he's bringing judgment because of sin. That's an uncomfortable truth. But you see, in just taking the little truths about God that we're comfortable with and ignoring the ones we're uncomfortable with, we not only deceive ourselves and miss out on the bigness and enjoying the reality of who God actually is, we also just grow deeper into our pride and make ourselves at greater odds, at greater war with God. It's very dangerous to pick and choose what we want to believe about God rather than going to Scripture and saying, God, I want to know you in your fullness. I want to trust you in everything. But then think about it. If someone did that to you, if someone came up to you and they said, I saw how you interacted with your spouse over there. I saw how you interacted with those kids today. You're just a horribly mean person. Or they just like, they just think this one thing is true about you and nothing else. For me, people think like I'm really goofy, all right? And so sometimes I get frustrated because I, I think people only think I'm goofy. They don't realize I can be serious. I can have a conversation that's, you know, legitimate. <laughs> and, and when you do that to people, it's foolish. We would all look at that and say, no, you've got to get to know them better. You've got to spend time with them. We see it's foolish to do with people but we do it with God way too often. Right after Daniel's plea for Nebuchadnezzar to repent, we see in verse 30 that Nebuchadnezzar exclaims, is this not Babylon the great that I have built by my vast power to be a royal residence and to display my majestic glory? 
This is like the nail in the coffin for the next seven years. Like he's saying bye-bye to being king of like the greatest nation ever. Hello to being a crazy lunatic cowman. He's about to go insane. But even when I read this, when I read his words, like, oh, look how good I am. Look at all this stuff that I've accomplished and I've built. Like, I love my daughter. She's not this bad. Uh, she's still sinful, though. I, I think of whenever she looks at me and she says, no, Daddy, Joy, do it. Like, she wants to do everything herself. I'm trying to make her a peanut butter and jelly sandwich because that's what she wants and is begging for. But then, no, Daddy, Joy, do it. Like, she thinks she can do all this stuff on herself, but she's going to just, like, make a mess, and she's not going to get, like, nearly as much as I, I can give her. You know, same with toys. Like, she thinks that somehow they're just all her. She fails to recognize me and her mother have been the ones providing for her. Nebuchadnezzar's acting like a child, proclaiming, looking at his stuff, saying, look at all this stuff that shows how great and awesome I am. And now God's about to humble him. Before we look at the, the final uh, parts of this, this chapter, I want to look at three things regarding pride that we've got we've to sort of analyze ourselves, see if we're dealing with pride, but there are also sort of dangers and just reasons pride is, is not a good thing. And so the first truth about pride we're going to look at is, is something we've already discussed, but pride inwardly denies the reality of who God is. So again, Nebuchadnezzar was proclaiming, whenever I was doing the reviews of the other chapters, right, he's already said over and over several true things about God. He's saying it with his mouth, but clearly there's a disconnect with his heart. Clearly he hasn't understood the full extent of who God is. He especially hasn't understood the truth that everything he has is a gift from God. You see, James literally says that, that God is the father of lights, the giver of all good gifts. Your talents and abilities are a gift from God. Your position, yes, you've worked hard for it, but you would have never got there if it weren't for God working through all these things that, that you oftentimes just ignore and maybe say is a coincidence. Ask yourself, is there a truth about God that you have sort of hardened your heart towards? That you have, have sort of ignored for the sake of remaining comfortable or, or because it, it requires too much of you? And if that's where you are, realizing that inwardly, you are proud and denying the reality of who God fully is. Truly accepting God, truly surrendering and acknowledging that it's his will and not my will that should be done, will lead to repentance. Will lead to saying, God, I, I don't want my desires fully because I see that your desires, your will for me is much better. It's going to lead to much greater joy. It's going to lead to much greater success. Even if it's not success in my eyes. It's success in what God has created me for. Pride inwardly denies the reality of who God is. The second thing that pride does to us is pride steals our joy. If you are proud, you will lack joy immensely. Nebuchadnezzar had, again, greatest kingdom on earth. Literally, like, they had ancient skyscrapers. I don't know what they looked like. I didn't go doing some digging or whatever, you know, to try to figure that out. But it was a beautiful place to live. They had so much stuff. He had one of these ancient wonders of the world that was like these floating gardens. It was just a bunch of beautiful flowers everywhere. So he had so much. He had all the food he wanted. He wasn't afraid of any other military place like coming and taking over, right? Yet Nebuchadnezzar was not filled with joy enjoying all these things that God had blessed him with. He was, he was terrified in his sleep. He was tormented by this dream. He was, he was unable to enjoy these things because of his pride. The reason is because when we're filled with pride and stuff goes our way, 
we're successful, you simply say, well, it's about time. Finally, things are working out like they're supposed to. I mean, I, I deserved this a long time ago. I'm just getting what I'm due. That's the attitude of pride and success. You say, I've earned it. I've got it. I got it. That's what Nebuchadnezzar has done. He's unable to be satisfied. But also, it steals your joy in the midst of trials. You see, the Bible speaks of Christians enduring many trials, especially the New Testament church who is facing many, like one being being burnt alive, except God didn't come and, you know, step and save them. He had a purpose in them being martyred. But like, scary stuff, scary trials. And the Bible teaches that we're able to endure trials. Our faith is able to be strengthened. We can even endure them with peace and joy because we know the truth of who God is and how he's made us right with himself. Pride will remove your ability to face trials with joy. Do you realize, before we move on to the next point, Nebuchadnezzar is experiencing success that only a small, small portion of people will ever experience in their entire life. That probably, well, definitely, nobody in this room is going to experience success like that. In the top 1% of success, right, I'm talking like you have everything. And you know they, they say, and there's been studies done, that, that the people that are the most successful at the very, very, very top, they're actually plagued the most. You see, they're able to see a little bit more clearly and firsthand what, what we so often desire, uh, or deny. And that is that, that no matter how much we receive, it's never going to fill the void that is in our heart. The void that can only be filled when we are in right relationship with our creator. No amount of success is going to fill that. Pride steals your joy. The third thing pride does. Pride makes us less than who God is calling us to be. Remember when the voice from heaven in the dream, it says God is the ruler over the kingdoms of men. He's the one who, who gives these kingdoms to the lowliest of men even. He sets up weak people. The only reason I'm able to stand up here and speak competently is honestly because God is allowing me to. It's not because I'm some special person. Our successes are the gift of God. And we should rejoice in those gifts. But because Nebuchadnezzar aspired to be more than a man, God declared you will become less than a man. When you aspire to be more than God is creating you and calling you to be, if he's feeling merciful, you will become way less. Guys, God has created each and every one of us. He's, he's put us in the homes that we were born in. In the times where we're growing up as children that we all say are the most influential times to our specific desires like that, our gifts that we enjoy doing, to the coworkers who maybe helped you, you know, get that business started or whatever it is, all those connections. Like God sovereignly is, is orchestrating these things because he has a plan for you. A plan for, for you to be able to, to be in right relationship with him, be used by him, bring glory to him, and find joy in that relationship. But in our pride, we deny who we're supposed to be and we seek to be more. God literally changed Nebuchadnezzar having the mind of a cow. An actual disease called lycanthropy that happens where people believe themselves to be animals. And there's actually a guy like in 1946 in, in Britain or somewhere who was in a mental institution who had like the exact, you know, sort of 
What's the word? What's the word? He was doing the same thing as Nebuchadnezzar. He thought he was a cow. He was walking around. He was eating grass, and he was just crazy. But not to the extent of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar for seven years was in this state. The Bible says his hair grew long like, like eagle's wings. His, his fingernails were long like, like bird's talons. And, oh, think of how gross. He never cut his fingernails. You ever seen the Guinness Book of World Records, those people with the long fingernails? Disgusting. He was a lunatic out there. He was a straight cow. But do you see God was using this to humble him? This was actually a display of God's great mercy towards him. God could have killed him on the spot. Could have said, I'm replacing you with this other king. But God in his mercy allowed him to be brought very, very, very low. And I want to say one more thing before we move on to how we pursue to fight and war against pride. What we've got to know. And that is this. Nebuchadnezzar was not simply trying to do the best he could be. Or, or do, you know, do his best work. That's an admirable thing, right? Like if you're giving 20% at your job or, or you're, you're just giving that little effort in your work, the things that you do and are pursuing, it's not very admirable. Like God, God has given us ability to work hard and to do what is good, to be successful, right? But it's about our heart behind it. It's about the heart and the mind connection, that relationship with God. And like Nebuchadnezzar, he was not pursuing to just work and do the best he could do. He was pursuing to be like God in human form, to be over everybody, to be the biggest Lord, the greatest king ever. He was not humbling himself before God. But now that we've diagnosed some issues with pride, some, some ways to acknowledge our pride, I, I want to say three very clear core biblical truths that are the only truths, I believe, or the main truths, I should have said, that we must submit to and believe with all of our heart if we're ever going to defeat pride in our lives. Okay? Very important. Because again, each of us is going to be filled with pride on some level. The first truth that we have got to trust is that you truly do not deserve anything from God but judgment. You and I and every person who walks this earth only deserves the judgment of God. You want to know the reason for that? If you've come to church before, you probably heard it's because of our sinful nature. Our hearts are not inclined to do God's will. We don't look at God and say, yeah, God, what's next? We look at God and say, uh-uh, I'm doing my own thing. We rebel against God on a daily basis. And every single person has been cursed with this heart of sin, this sinful desire. Because God is so holy and perfect and just, he is right in condemning us to judgment. God should look at us because of our sin and judge us. We deserve nothing else. And if you want to fight back against that, then you're not seeing the bigness of God's perfection and his justice and the depth of our, our sin and our wickedness. Because none of us in this place would look at a, a person who murdered three children and say, Judge, just, just give him a slap on the wrist. But we look at God and say, God, I don't deserve that punishment. I, I don't deserve your judgment. We're not seeing the depth of our rebellion in contrast with the perfection and holiness of God. But the second core truth actually needs to be intermingled with that first one. And that is this, you are the object of greatest mercy. You are the object of greatest mercy. Though you deserve only the judgment of God, like Nebuchadnezzar, we have received the mercy of God. God didn't just kill him. 
He hasn't just killed us the moment we sin. Me as a born-again believer, yeah, you know I still wage war against sin. I still slip up and mess up sometimes. And God doesn't just cut me off and say, that was your last chance. God is constantly merciful with us. But like the Apostle Paul said, that's no excuse to continue in sin, right? Rather, it moves us to greater honor and praise and glorifying of God. It brings us to a greater awe of who God is and just how much he's done for us. The way you know that that God has provided this mercy ultimately for us is we're like the one in the courtroom who's guilty and instead of condemning us to death, our, our right punishment, Jesus, the only one who ever walked the earth, steps in our place, the only one never sinning, the only one not cursed by sin, not deserving of death. And he says, I'll take your punishment but surrender to me as Lord. Acknowledge who I am and what I've done. You deserve nothing from God but judgment, yet you are the object of greatest mercy if you surrender and trust in Jesus. The third truth we've got to see clearly, and we've got to to realize the magnitude of this truth, is that God is the sovereign Lord. Yahweh God, the God of the Bible, not the God of uh, Buddhism, Hinduism, uh, Islam, the God of the Bible, the Christian God, is the sovereign Lord over all creation. What that means is that, that he's the one in charge, that he's the one calling the shots. What that means is that he's the one who rules over the president, over all the kings. He's the one who's given the gifts. He's the one who formed you in your mother's womb. He's the one who knows all things. Proverbs 16 verse 9 says, The heart of man plans his way, but God establishes his steps. Your success, remember this, because this will will get you falling into pride so often. Your success is a result of God's giftedness. It doesn't mean you haven't worked hard. Instead, it should motivate you to work harder. Acknowledging that, that God has given you those gifts with a purpose. He's given you those gifts to bring greater glory to him, to bring you joy in the fact that he's interacting with you. You've got to remember that that he is God and and we are not. We fail when we make ourselves one with God. But when God is merciful to humble us, even if it's painful, if God's the one doing it, it'll usually result in in like Nebuchadnezzar in the end of chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar looks up to heaven and he says this, I praised the most high and honored and glorified him who lives forever. His sanity is returned for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing and he does what he wants with the armies of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. There is no one who can hold him back and say to him, what have you done? Why did you do this to me, God? You can't say that to God. Who can say that to God and be right in saying it? He is able to humble those who walk in pride. This is Nebuchadnezzar saying these words, but now he's saying it, finally realizing and surrendering in his heart. God restores his kingdom. But we're going to close with this contrast, all right? You ready for this? Nebuchadnezzar thought himself to be the master of the universe. The king over all set himself up above every other kingdom, every other person, right? Yet God humbled him and showed him who he really was. 
And in contrast to that, we see Jesus Christ, the only person to ever walk the earth who actually is the master of the universe. Yet instead of walking around with pride, humbled himself to being born in a stable, humbled himself to being the servant of all men, humbled himself to spend time with sinners so that they may may see the truth and be set free from their sin and saved by the grace of God through his work. He humbled himself even to the point, like we say so much every Sunday, to the point of death on a cross. A death no one would willingly submit themselves to. A death that's so gruesome, disgusting, humiliating. Yet the God of the universe became a man and humbled himself to that point so that you may be forgiven of your sin, freed from your sin, and made right with him. Walk according to his purpose. Experience life and joy as he's calling you to. Y'all, because we talk about Jesus every week, what happens is we forget how powerful this, this core truth of the gospel is. We forget that this is the life-changing message, the sin-setting free message, the one that, that completely cleanses us, the one that makes us able to be salt and light in this dark world, the one that helps us not be like the world on Facebook and everything else, right? Don't just let this message be something you repeat every week or you hear every week, oh, yeah, Jesus, he saved me. Let this get you excited. Remember, day and night, meditate on the truth of who God is and just how much he's done on our behalf. Make it your mission to see and walk in the will of God and surrender to him every day to flee your sin and trust in him. The final thing I'll say, if you are are desiring right now in your heart, you're, you're being drawn to just this, this moment of, I, I want to surrender to you, God. I don't want to walk in my pride. I don't want to walk in my sin anymore. The Bible is very clear. The Apostle Paul put it like this. Confess with your mouth. Speak that Jesus is Lord, that you believe that. And then believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And that's simple, yes. But the question is, are you going to be fully surrendered When you say that. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar said all those things, yet he wasn't fully surrendered. Finally, God humbled him and he fully surrendered. And when Nebuchadnezzar fully surrendered to Jesus, he confessed, right? Nebuchadnezzar didn't do this. He didn't see Jesus yet. But when you do this and you confess Jesus is Lord, when you believe that God raised him from the dead to defeat your sin and death, you will proclaim, like Nebuchadnezzar did, the glory, the goodness of God. You will not keep it silent. So if you, as we pray, I'm not going to lead you in a prayer, but I'm just going to invite you to pray in your heart. Pray sincerely. God, I surrender all to you. Not my will, but your will be done. Jesus, I trust you with everything. If that's you this morning, pray that in your heart. And when we leave this place, either talk to someone, write something on a card, put it in the offering box and say, I need a pastor to talk to me. Because we do not be transformed by the salvation of Jesus Christ and stay the same, and stay silent. My prayer is that we would be a church that is able to make a difference in this dark world because we together point each other to surrender in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for how how patient you are with, uh, first of all, me. Because, Lord, I know my heart. And, God, I am so quick to, to run back to things that are are rebellious against you that that don't bring me joy. But just 
Seek to separate me from you. But God, in your patience, in your mercy, you, you, don't, you don't let go of me. You've saved me through the work of your son Jesus on the cross. And God, now you have a hold of me. Lord, you have a hold of those in here who have surrendered to you fully. And so, Lord, we thank you and we praise you for your saving work upon our lives. God, we ask that, that you grow us and mature us to be holy as you are holy. Make us more like yourself each day. Help us to, to not just come to church and it be a, a check in a box, but help us to come to church, be plugged into community where we're speaking truth to one another, where we're praising, rejoicing your work. Where we are constantly being reminded of all that you are as the one sovereign God over all creation. Lord, anyone in here, who is, is still in rebellion against you, I just beg that you would not let them leave this place without deep conviction of their sin, without drawing them to a place of repentance, turning from that sin and surrendering to your will for their lives. God, help us to make a difference, not for our glory, but for yours. God, we pray all these things, asking them as sincerely as we can in the name of Jesus.